you are at Founders FAQ, answers to all the possible questions of a founder. I think that long-term, one of the best things that founders can do is actually get at the root of the problem, which is structural more than anything. If they feel responsible for everything, if they feel like they have to do everything, manage everything, oversee everything, that quickly becomes untenable. And so the answer really is building out a strong enough leadership team so that you have the confidence to be able to step away, even for a little while. Welcome to Founders FAQ. Today, my guest is Dory Clark. Dory has been named one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50 and was recognized as the number one communication coach in the world by Marshall Goldsmith. Clark, a consultant and keynote speaker, teaches executive education at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and Columbia Business School, and she is the author of Entrepreneurial You, Reinventing You, and Stand Up, which was was named the number one leadership book of 2015 by Inc. Magazine. Hi, Dori. Welcome to Founders of EQ. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here with you. I have a lot of questions for you, but at first place, I would like to start with founder core values. Before founders are starting their businesses, how should they find their core values before starting their startup? Because it's kind of important to find your own personal values before starting a startup. What do you say about it? Yeah, it's, it's such a good question to really think through your values, because I think for most people, we don't necessarily know them instinctively. We certainly have a sense of, oh, well, you know, of course, I believe in innovation, or I believe in fairness, or I believe in opportunity. You know, we we have things that we gravitate toward. But ultimately, when it comes to our values, it's there, there's lots of platitudes that, that, that people say, oh, well, you know, yeah, everyone agrees with this. Everyone, uh, everyone thinks that. But values really come into play when you have to make choices, when there, it's about strategic decisions about, okay, well, what if there are two perfectly nice values and they are rubbing up against each other? What are you actually choosing? Where, where do you go from there? And what, what is it that you're prioritizing? What is your North Star? When we think about something like uh, a Walmart, let's say, or, or, you know, in latter times in Amazon, they are about ruthless efficiency, about supply chain, about lowering costs. That is what they're aiming at. That is really different than what an Apple, uh, which is trying to be a, a premium product, is aiming at. And so, you know, how do we how do we think through those things? I think ultimately it's really asking ourselves a few questions. You know, who who are we serving, of course? What what is the way that we uniquely, you know, we being our, our company, can uniquely uh, serve them? And what does that imply? <laughs> I think that sometimes we, we have to back into our values. You know, what is it that we're that we're doing? And then what does that mean about us? Because if we're just putting a list of words on paper, we're all going to come up with the same list and it's not really going to mean anything. I think sometimes it's looking at our actions and what we're actually doing and then saying, oh, okay, what is the logical extension of this? And is that something 
something I actually can stand for and get behind. And and it's also important for the downtimes, right? Because startup journey is all up and downs. And on the downtimes, it's really the founders should really know the, their core values to go up again. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, the startup journey for sure is one that is rocky and unpredictable. And so knowing what you are aiming toward can often give us a larger mission that enables us to withstand the downtimes or to withstand setbacks because it's not just about, oh, well, I'm going to go public or I'm, I'm going to be uh, successful in, in this financial way. If you are trying to make a big change, which I think a lot of people in the Silicon Valley ecosystem or the broader startup community are trying to do, if you want to uh, change the way an industry is run, or if you want to make a significant impact on the future, and you know that your angle in, regardless of the setbacks, it it can help motivate you to get through them. I get it. I get it. And in, in this journey, the core part is the product market fit at the first place before the startups scales and the product market fits core part is the clients. So what do you say about the clients and startup journeys till the IPO is like seven to eight, maybe 10 years process and how to keep those clients alive and what's the formula for this? Because you're evolving, your clients are evolving and how do you adopt this evolution? Yeah, the, the truth is the clients that you have in the earliest days of your business may not be the clients that you have as you expand and grow. And that can be an awkward process. Um, It can be awkward on a lot of levels. One is if you remain loyal to the clients and keep serving them and sort of grandfather them in, but nonetheless, um, as the years go by, they are a drain on your resources because probably you were charging them a lot less than you're charging now. And so you might even find yourself being resentful of, oh God, it's these people again. That becomes a problem. Um, It's also a problem um, if, you know, this sort of awkwardness of, well, how do you let them go? Or what does what does that look like? But we we need to understand in the life cycle of a company that you are going to pivot and evolve. And, and of course, if you're dramatically pivoting, if your business is doing something completely different, then okay, that's a pretty it's a pretty reasonable excuse to say, oh, sorry, we can't serve you anymore because we're doing this totally different thing. But it becomes harder and trickier if it's not a dramatic pivot, but just instead maybe you're moving up market or maybe, oh, well, we used to we used to do this hands-on agency type stuff, but now we've moved to a SaaS model, but oh, I guess we can keep, we can keep helping you. And sometimes we, we, you know, it it reminds me of the, uh, the Elvis Costello song. Uh, It's, it's cruel to be kind. (laughs) And so sometimes when we try to be kind by saying, oh, well, we can, we can keep helping you. That actually is a mistake that is not good for you and not good for the client. Um, You really have to be providing services for people in the place that you are now, rather than where you were three years or five years ago. I get it. I get it. And in, in this process, not only the founder, but all the A plus people in your team also providing this value to the customer and how do you set up the right culture in a startup because like five team startup people culture is kind of wholly different than the like 100 people team what do you say about it what should founders do in this scaling part in terms of culture building yeah culture building is so crucial and uh, my good friend Alyssa Cohn actually has a, a book uh, she should be, she should be on your show you'd love her uh, she has a book coming out in October 2021 called From Startup to Grown Up 
where she talks a lot about the uh, the arc, the founder's arc and the importance of scaling things like culture. But what I will say about that is, you know, obviously culture gets set implicitly in the early days because you just have this tiny community and you're right there and you're rolling up your sleeves and people uh, people pick it up by osmosis. They see how you are, how you're acting, and they're, they're modeling that and mirroring that. But of course, as your company gets larger, it can spiral out of control sometimes if you're not mindful of it. So I think there's really a couple of pieces. The first is that as founders, you have to always keep, keep a hand in the culture of your business. There's a lot of things that might compete for your time. You might be out of the office a ton, uh, literally or metaphorically, uh, doing promotion, uh, doing marketing, meeting with investors, all kinds of activities that, that keep you away from things. And you might have perfect faith in your COO to run the company. They might be doing a great job, but you have to be the bearer of the culture torch. And so it's really important to make sure that you don't get so disconnected, uh, even if everything else is under control, that you lose the ability to help shape the culture. I think that's number one. And then second, of course, is making sure that you are being really mindful of hiring the right people. Again, not just because of technical competence, but also in terms of the environment that they're creating. Because in the short term, while it might seem fine to hire someone that's that's very effective and technically competent, but doesn't have a good personality or has has some kind of flaws, um, it's really not a good long-term solution because, you know, depending what that means, if they are managing other people, they might be driving those employees away, which is going to increase your recruitment costs. Um, if they have a defect, like there's some kind of a bully or a harasser that might actually open your company up to legal exposure. Um, so there's a lot of ticking time bombs that come with hiring people who you might say, oh, well, you know, they're, they're so good at what they do. We'll just make the exception. It is really not a good idea to make the exception because you won't pay for it today. You'll pay for it three to five years from now, and then you'll really pay for it. I get it. And what do you say in, in all remote era right now? It's, it seems like in a couple of years, it will go like all remote. And do you think it's hard to get A plus people and also keep them in this process? And what are what are, what are formulas to like make the same like kind of structure, openness and transparency in all those stuff in a remote culture? It is challenging with remote cultures. I mean, we're, we're all learning, right? We're sort of inventing in real time what it means to have a, a strong company culture. I think over time, people will figure it out. Uh, they'll figure out best practices, but it's still in a very liminal phase. And so no one really knows the right way to do it, quote unquote. Um, I do think that in some ways it makes it easier to get the best people because of course, if your company is purely remote, you have 7 billion people to choose from, you know, not literally 7 billion because they have to have computers and the right skills, but nonetheless, a lot of people rather than just people who are in your city. So that's, that's positive. Um, but by the same token, it does make it easier for those people to walk because they, they have all the options in the world and they may not be as connected. You may not necessarily feel as real to them. Uh, if, if you're just interacting on a screen as compared to, oh, wow, all these people that I know really well, and I have to tell them I'm leaving, you know, there's sort of a feeling of guilt or obligation that goes along with it, which when you're interacting on a screen, I think is, is much less pronounced. 
bounced. And so um, people may well be more likely to jump for, for a better uh, offer in that situation. So I do think as soon as COVID makes, you know, is abated and it, it's possible, I think that one of the things that will become a glue that holds remote companies together is the idea of a once or twice a year in-person gathering. Um, I think that if if you are continuing a relationship virtually, that's not that hard. But forming a relationship virtually and having it be virtual forever, that's really hard. Um, you know, as humans, we're not really wired for that. So I, I think if we can get back to a place where travel is feasible and people are able to connect once or twice a year and have these kind of, kind of all company meetings or offsites or things like that, that is going to become uh, a very common way of doing business. And I think will help cement bonds uh, when when people are able to be brought together for a long weekend or a week or something on campus. I get it. I get it. And uh, while the startup scaling founder as a, as a person should scale, scale herself again. And what do you say about coachability in this term? Because I think it's an important thing uh, in a founder journey to be coachable. What do you say about it while startup is scaling, the founder should scale itself? Yeah, I, I think it's exactly right that we all as professionals, but certainly if you're a startup founder, need to be mindful that we don't we don't know everything. We need to continue to have skills development. And for founders, what they are having to, to manage is changing really dramatically. I mean, that's why it's one of the hardest jobs is for many jobs, anyone has a little bit of a challenge onboarding. You know, they have to figure out, okay, how does, how does this work? How do I do this? But then they're there for a few months or maybe a year and they've got it, right? The job, the job stays pretty static. They're like, okay, I can do this now. I've attained some proficiency. Great. Now I'm, now I'm rocking. But the problem is for, for a startup founder, the minute you attain proficiency at something, all of a sudden the rules have changed. You know, oh, you just learned to play basketball and now it's a cricket match. You know, it's just like, what? Uh, because it's a very different thing managing a company with five people as compared to a company with 20 people as compared to a company with 70 people. And so they are going, in, unless, unless they're going to take themselves out of contention and say, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to hand this over to a professional CEO. Um, if they are going to be the one personally to manage those transitions, they are of course going to need some help. You can't, you can't learn everything you need to know on your own and simultaneously be running the ship. So having help through the form of hiring an executive coach, possibly doing some executive education, those are things that are really important in terms of shortening your learning curve and making sure that you're not, that you're not inadvertently replicating the mistakes that a million people have made uh, in your position before. I get it. I get it. And in, in, in this process, founders can burn out as well. In, in a motivational part, what should they do? Yeah, burnout is a real concern when it comes to startup, startup founders. Obviously, it's a very intense job. Um, the hours are intense. The responsibilities are intense. But I, I think often the hardest part is that when you are working for a corporation, you have the ability to separate yourself out from it. I mean, you might be very invested in your job, but you understand, okay, I am not Procter and Gamble. If Procter and Gamble, you know, is, you know, having bad earnings or if they make some kind of a mistake, like, it, you know, it's not the end of the world for me because I, you know, I'm, I might be working for them, but it's not the same thing. Whereas a founder oftentimes literally for better or for worse identifies with their company. The company is them in their heart and 24 hours a day that's in their head. And so it's, it's like, you never get a break from it. You never get a, a respite. So that 
of course, can wear you down over time. If things are not going well, it can be very, very stressful. So, you know, there, there's some obvious things, of course. I'm certainly a fan of uh, stress reduction techniques or, you know, meditation or things, things that people can do that can help them learn to quiet their mind and to quiet some of their stress response so that they can get a little bit of space from it. But I, I think that long term, one of the best things that founders can do is actually get at the root of the problem, which is structural more than anything. If they feel responsible for everything, if they feel like they have to do everything, manage everything, oversee everything, that quickly becomes untenable. And so the answer really is building out a strong enough leadership team so that you have the confidence to be able to step away, even for a little while, you know, to, to be able to go out to dinner with your spouse or your family and to, to not look at your phone for 90 minutes and not feel like the world is going to blow up. And if you if you have that peace of mind that like, okay, I know some someone else besides me can handle this, then I think that's a step in the right direction. I get it. I get it. And my last question is startup is a long journey and how to play the long run in this game, like in terms of business, in terms of relationships and other factors. Yes, it, it really is. And uh, of course, you're, you're hitting on a favorite theme of mine because I have a book that is coming out in September of 2021 called The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. Uh, so I'm definitely a, a fan of that mentality and mindset. I, I think a, a problem that a lot of people in our modern society face these days is the fact that you know, you look around, especially on social media, and it seems like everybody, everybody else has it all figured out. Oh, well, you know, their startup just got $3 million. Oh, well, they just got their series B. Wait a minute. They just got distribution in Whole Foods. And, you know, it, it's, it seems like, oh no, well, why haven't I done that? Or what am I doing wrong? You know, oh, wait, wait, he, he has a beach house in Miami now. Why, why, why don't I? Um, and there's just this co constant race and competition. And of course, competition is good up to a point, but I think sometimes we drive ourselves crazy with it and it leads to suboptimal decision-making because if we are even subconsciously optimizing for the short term, we are probably not making the kind of strategic investments that will actually enable us to become exponentially more effective and more successful in the long term. So I think really just trying to forcibly reorient ourselves to understand that we, to a certain extent, we need to put on blinders about what, what the rest of the world is doing. We need to play our own game and we need to, to be comfortable enough in ourselves to say, you know what? Success is probably not going to happen as fast as I want it to. But if I am methodical in moving forward, odds are you will be able to have a far greater return than most of the other people who are not willing to put in that work. Great. Tori, these are all my questions. Thank you for coming to Founders FAQ. Oh, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And I'll, I'll just mention briefly for your listeners who are, of course, are entrepreneurs and founders themselves, that I have a free tool that they might be interested in. It's called the 88 question entrepreneurial use self-assessment. It's about how to create multiple streams of income in your business. And folks can get it for free at doryclark.com slash on. By the way, you can order Founders FAQ from the website. It covers the answers to all the possible questions of a founder in a startup journey, whether revealing life-saving principles for the startup survival path, building A-plus teams, creating an evolving machine, setting up a need culture, or interpreting the true path for the fundraising. And you can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook.